0: Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible. There are Bibles on the welcome table there where you first came in. Love to have you follow along with us in God's Word. If you have our church app in the home tab, there is a Bible. That the YouVersion Bible app is embedded there, so you can always access the Bible as well through there. This morning, we're starting a brand new study through the book of Ephesians. Today, we're looking at part one, just giving you a heads up, it's going to take us a couple weeks here. Part one of an intro into Ephesians, our main text is going to be Ephesians 1, verses 1 and 2, really parking in verse 1, Uh, but let's read those two verses as we get into our study this morning. So Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've been a part of this church for long enough, you've learned that I'm a huge fan of book introductions. Uh, I really, really like them. It challenges me. I love getting into the historical context, looking at the background, the setting, the purpose. um, Because in all of that, there's so much value. It's so important when we get into a new study in the Word of God to understand what we're reading. What was going on at that point in time? What were these believers facing? Why was this an important word for them? How is this an important word still for us. So it's important for us to spend some time looking at the background, looking at the context, the purpose, so we better understand what we're going to be studying, what God would have to say to us, and help provide us with the right perspective as we approach the scriptures we're going to be getting into in the coming weeks and months. And so let's get into it. First, let's look at who this letter was written by. Look at verse 1 again. Paul. An apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So right away in verse 1, we see who wrote it in the introduction. It's Paul. He's an apostle. In chapter 3, verse 1, for some more internal evidence of Paul's writing, he refers to himself again. He says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles... Now this Paul, if you're not super familiar with him, I'm not going to give like a really in-depth um, background on the Apostle Paul, but he was formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. He was a Pharisee. He was bent previously on persecuting disciples of Jesus, bent on destroying Jesus' church, until Jesus met him in a post-resurrection, post-ascension state of glory on the road to Damascus where Jesus interrupted Saul's life and path of destruction where he was wreaking havoc on the church, uh, invading people's homes, dragging off men and women and, and taking them to prison because they confessed the name of Jesus. They confessed his lordship. Saul there on the road to Damascus was confronted with the reality that Jesus is the Messiah. He is Lord and Savior. He is alive. It was the last thing that Saul of Tarsus would have thought as he's blinded, that the voice he was hearing was the voice of Jesus of Nazareth, and yet it was. And through that encounter, Saul surrendered his life to and became a disciple of, Of Jesus, he went from being one of the greatest persecutors and enemies of the church to becoming one of the greatest missionary, church planter, evangelist, pastor, teachers the church has ever known. And eventually, he no longer was called Saul, but became known as Paul. Luke, spending about half of the book of Acts, recording what the Holy Spirit of God did through Paul's life and ministry. And a good portion of our New Testament scriptures consist of letters that Paul wrote through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 1, Paul calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now, an apostle, as we'll see in this letter in chapter 4, was one of the leadership giftings, one of the leadership roles that the Holy Spirit appointed people to in Jesus's church. And the role of apostles specifically was a unique role given to select men in the early church that was given by God for the purpose of setting the foundation of the church. Apostles had a foundational role. There is no longer apostles in the primary sense of, of what Jesus did initially, who were given apostolic authority, who had the ability through the inspiration of the Spirit to give new revelation from God, writing New Testament Scripture, laying that foundation that the church would be built upon. And that foundation has Jesus Christ as its chief cornerstone, as we'll see Paul write about at the end of chapter 2 in this letter. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, notice. So he didn't promote himself into the ministry. He wasn't voted in. There wasn't some sort of, you know, political rally that was going on within the church. Like, we really like Paul. He's got a great platform. He's got a lot of great things to say. He's a little gnarly at times, but we like him. Let's make him an apostle. Let's vote. That's not how it happened. Wasn't voted in. He didn't earn his way up like someone climbing the corporate ladder. It wasn't any of those things at all. Paul says that this calling that God had put upon his life to be an apostle, which, just so we have an understanding here, an apostle means a sent one. So in the primary sense of, apostolic authority, laying the foundation of the church, uh, new revelation from God that became New Testament scripture, that primary sense of an apostle ended with the early church. We have, in a secondary sense, still apostles in the sense of people who are sent, people who are missionaries in a secondary sort of way or sort of apostles, Church planners are are sort of apostles in that sense, not, again, in the primary sense that we see in the early church, but still people being sent by God, that this was a result, his apostolic uh, role was a result of God's will. In this first chapter alone, Paul is going to reference the will of God four different times. God has a will for our lives. I hope we know that. I hope that's not like a daunting thing. He has a will. A wheel. Will? Will. Not wheel. Will. He's got a purpose. He has a plan. He's not haphazard with our lives. Paul, years earlier, had wanted to go into Asia, Asia Minor. We think of like the Asian continent. Asia Minor, the area of Turkey. And we see in Acts chapter 16, I believe, where the, the Holy Spirit of God three different times tells, tells Paul, no, no, you're not going. And, and I just sense here as Paul's now years later, writing this letter, him going, God has a will. His will at that point in time was was not for me to go. He ended up bringing me there, but God's got a will. He's got us. He's got a plan. We can trust him. We can trust his will. We can trust his power. We can trust his goodness. That even as Paul is beginning in this letter, he's just going like, guys, guys got us. He's got us. So we see who wrote this letter, but let's look at who this letter was written to. Verse 1, Paul addresses this letter to the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, because of the influence of certain segments of Christendom, right? The church at large, the church throughout history. Some might have a skewed perspective of what a saint is. Maybe in their minds, they think that a saint is a special title given to select or elite or perfected, sinless even believers who hold a special place in heaven and in the eyes of God. Maybe for some, when they think of a saint, they think of like their saint playing card that they got from their church. It's their saint. It's on their dashboard of their car. Their saint looks out for them. I, I'm not making this up. I had a coworker. I'd go to lunch with him at times, and on his dashboard, it was like, Tchotchkes, like a bobblehead almost. Like there's the saint, and it's his, you know, patron saint, and he's looking out for him. Someone to make prayers to. These are maybe in some people's minds. This is when you think a saint. This is what the connection is. You're you're thinking of a super believer. Not like us, but none of those things are actually true biblically. You know who's a saint? This guy, and her, and him, and her, and me. It's us. Any person who has put their faith in Jesus Christ received his free gift of salvation by grace, been born again by the Spirit of God, is a saint. We see this in Paul's address here. The saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Saints and faithful are not a separate group. This isn't a separate distinction that Paul's making about these people he's writing to. No, this term faithful in Jesus Christ Refers to them believing in Christ Jesus. The reason they were able to be called saints, the reason there was a church in Ephesus, was because these people had believed, put their faith in Christ Jesus, and were saved by his grace. In the New Testament, and we see this here, God calls his people, those redeemed by the blood of Jesus, Those who are disciples of Jesus Christ, been set apart and made holy to him, which includes us today, saints. And aren't you thankful that God sees you and me differently than we see ourselves oftentimes? Guys, what God says about us will always be truer than what anyone else might say about us or what we might say about ourselves, or even how we might feel about ourselves. We praise God for that. But this helps us to see that that Paul's writing to a group of believers, a group of disciples of Jesus, not any different than us, not elevated above us, writing to Christians who comprise the church in Ephesus. But let's look at what we know about Ephesus and, and how the church in Ephesus got started. So turn with me and your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. You don't need to hold your place in Ephesians. The next couple of weeks, we're going to kind of park ourselves here and, and look at some further things in, in light of an introduction to the, the book of Ephesians. And I've got a, a map image that we're going to put up on the screen and, and keep there just for a little while uh, to help us kind of better understand geographically where these people were at in the world. And I apologize that everything looks so small. Anybody have binoculars on them? It looks so much bigger on my laptop screen than you blow it up here. I did put a star there, though, so we would kind of know better. But let's, as, that, as that stays up here for a little bit, let's read the first part of uh, verse one, 1 of Acts chapter 19. It is and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. So we see over here to my right, you're right as well, because I'm facing the same way as you, we have the area of Israel down here at the bottom, Alexandria, that's northern Egypt, Cyrene uh, is northern Libya, we've got the island of Cyprus, and then this large landmass here is actually Turkey, is modern-day Turkey. And so Paul had traveled up past Antioch here, and he had traveled west and through the areas of Galatia and Phrygia. It says he passed through the northern regions and as he did that, he had been strengthening the disciples because Paul had already made other missionary journeys. He'd already traveled through. People had already gotten saved. New churches had already been planted in these different areas. And oftentimes, because of persecution, Paul's time would be very short. It's Like, hey, gets an opportunity, he preaches the gospel, people are getting saved, people are excited, and then it's like, they're going to kill you, Paul. Paul bails, maybe through a basket or, you know, know, he has to go out by night. The disciples are wanting to protect him in these new areas. And so he'd get out, go to a new area. And actually through persecution, the Spirit of God was pushing Paul out into new areas constantly with this constant dependency upon the Lord. God, okay, I got to get out of here. What do you want to do now? Well, I'm, I'm bringing you to a new area. There's new people to preach the gospel to. And so eventually it says that Paul got to Ephesus there. Ephesus, uh, which after much traveling, it says he came there. Just a little brief history before that. Paul, at the end of his second missionary journey, briefly visited the city of Ephesus. It says that he went into a synagogue and he began reasoning with the Jews. They really wanted him to stay longer, but he's like, guys... I really want to get to Jerusalem. There's this feast that I want to make it to. God willing, I'll come back. And that was like his one time there. Now Paul is back on his third missionary journey. The will of God was for Paul to return to Ephesus. Ephesus located on the west coast of modern day Turkey in what we know as uh, at that point in time was Asia or Asia Minor, also referenced as. It's situated on the Aegean coast. That's that area in between Greece and the west coast of Turkey there. And it was situated on the the mouth of a river. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Estimates of upwards of a quarter million people living in the city of Ephesus at that point in time. It was a major commercial center in that day. It was home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world the temple of artemis or diana which was uh, according to estimates by excavation was four times the size of the parthenon in athens artemis or diana was worshiped as a goddess of fertility and magic and astrology that the pra- practice of Magic was popular in Ephesus, and because of its popularity, the phrase Ephesian writings was used to describe any documents that contained magic formulas and spells, and Ephesus, probably in part, through all this witchcraft, this uh, ma- magic and spells and all these different things, and the, the worship of, of a false god, Ephesus was also known as a place of great demonic activity that helps just kind of provide a little bit of the historical and cultural context. Not just so we know the kind of area that Paul was ministering in and the kinds of things that he faced, but also to know the kind of area that these believers were still living in even after Paul, long after Paul left. The time that Paul is writing to these believers, what what are they in? What has God brought them out of? We're seeing in this chapter, and we'll see in this chapter, the kinds of uh, lives that God was saving people out of, and, and, and we're still having to, to, to be a witness in, it kind of helps us give us a, 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 a better understanding of, of why the things Paul writes to them would be so such a blessing, such an encouragement. But we're going to continue to learn about the people here. And how this church got started. So continue on. We're going to read the rest of verse 1 through verse 4. So Acts 19, the second part of the verse, it says in verse 1, In finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Are you crazy? No, he said into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. So Paul's return to Ephesus, and after returning, we see that he found some disciples. You see like this divine appointment here. Here's this group of disciples who are lacking in knowledge about the Spirit of God and just somehow God in a city of 250. It's not like this is a podunk town somewhere where there's only 50 people. So of course you're going to run into somebody. It's like, there's quarter million people. Paul just happens to find some disciples there that like God's orchestrating all this. God's wanting to strengthen and to, to fortify and to, to, to cause these people's roots and to grow down even deeper into the Lord. And, and so Paul here, it seems, from his question in verse 2, had some discernment to see that something was missing or lacking in their lives spiritually. We don't know what prompted his questions in verses 2 and 3, But Paul first asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And it was clearly a question motivated by the leading of the Holy Spirit because they responded by saying, we've not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. You know, when we first read Paul's questioning, it might strike us as a bit odd But his question helped reveal an area of lack spiritually in the lives of these disciples. Now, there are great Bible scholars who differ in their perspective of whether these disciples that Paul found were actually saved or not. But for me personally, as I studied partly in light of what Luke wrote before this in the book of Acts about the situation with Apollos, who lacked in some areas of knowledge in the ways of the Lord Jesus, I I lean towards these disciples actually being saved. We have to take note of the fact that Luke specifically refers to them as disciples, and that Paul said these disciples had believed, which must have been a belief, I believe, a belief about believing, Connected to the person and work of Jesus. Otherwise, Paul's first question would have been, have you repented and believed in Jesus for salvation? And not, hey, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? See, Paul's question was exposing an area of lack spiritually that resulted from them not receiving all that God had for them when it came to to the work of the Holy Spirit of God. If these men are saved, and I believe they were, Paul's not asking them if they had received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit when they believed because that would have happened the moment they were saved, they were regenerated, they were born again by the Spirit of God. No, I believe he's asking if they had received the baptism with the Holy Spirit, asking him, them if the Holy Spirit had come upon them, filling them when they believed. And I wonder if maybe what Paul had the discernment to see as he interacted with these disciples was a lack of spiritual power or, or a lack of the evidence of the agape love of God, the fruit of the Spirit in their lives that then prompted him to ask them this question. You ever met a believer and just sense that as you talk to them and you, you see maybe a lack of joy, a lack of vibrancy, a lack of power, or lack of boldness, or maybe it's just, man, they're struggling and they just can't seem to walk in that abundant, Spirit-filled, victorious life. And you just, maybe the takeaway for you, not, not in a judgmental sort of way, but you, maybe your takeaway was, have you been filled with the Spirit of God? Okay, yeah, you've been sealed with the Spirit of God. And I find it very interesting that years later, the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church in Ephesus, as we're going to see, he writes really specifically about being sealed with the Spirit, but then references in his letter how we can grieve the Spirit of God. And then, even after that, later in his letter, says to the believers that, that we're to be filled and to be being filled continually with the Spirit of God. And I, and I almost see like a, a reference, like a throwback to what we're seeing here. Okay, we've been sealed, we're saved, we have the Spirit of God as a down payment, an engagement ring, so to speak, that God has promised us eternity. But is, is there areas of lack where we're going, God, you've said there's more for me, but I'm sort of content with this other thing, thinking that's all that I can have in you. And God's going, but there's more. Paul somehow knew by the leading of the Spirit, you guys need to be filled with the Spirit of God. Again, we don't know how he noticed that, what maybe was evident in their lives. But maybe for us this morning, that's a connecting point for you and me. For some of us here, we're going, okay, yes, I've I've received Jesus as my Savior. I've committed my life to him. But is there evidence of the power of God in my life? Is the Spirit of God overflowing my life? And if he's not, why not? And why am I okay with that being the case? And maybe this morning God would use these things to draw us to a place where we would go, God, if you're saying there's more that you want to do, then God, do all that you want to do. Paul says, have you been, have you received the Spirit? We've not so much heard. Paul says, well, into what then you were baptized? Were you baptized? They, They said, into John's baptism. Now, if these disciples were Jewish, they would have known just from the Old Testament scriptures that there is a Holy Spirit. It's very clear. And even in the Old Testament Scriptures, there is a Holy Spirit. And whether Jew or Gentile, they would have known even from just their time with John the Baptist and his teachings that there is a Holy Spirit because John said, Look, I baptize you with water, but one is coming after me whose sandal straps I'm not even worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Luke 3.16 Their answer wasn't indicating that they were ignorant of any sort of idea about the Holy Spirit of God, but that they hadn't heard that the Holy Spirit had actually come, had been given in fulfillment of what John had spoken, things that happened after Jesus' ascension and began to be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two. Like Apollos, and it's it's possible even, that these men became disciples of Jesus through Apollos' ministry in Ephesus before he was taught more accurately the way of God by that power couple Aquila and Priscilla, these disciples' knowledge of the person and work of Jesus was clearly limited. They didn't know the Holy Spirit had been given on the day of Pentecost about 20 years earlier. They hadn't received the baptism with the Holy Spirit personally, but they had been baptized and John's baptism, which Paul goes on to explain, was not a believer's baptism where we identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but was a baptism of repentance, preparing the hearts of those who stepped into the waters with a, with a heart ready to believe on him who would come after John. That is Christ Jesus. These men had participated in John's baptism of repentance. They had believed in Jesus even with whatever limited knowledge they had about him, but there was more that God had for them that they were missing out on. And it's likely that Paul would have taught them more about these things, even though Luke doesn't record that explicitly here. I I can't believe he didn't, uh, which is going to lead them to responding the way that they will in the next couple of verses. And so verse 7, we continue on. When they heard this, They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. When they heard Paul teach them more fully about how John's ministry pointed to Jesus, more fully about Jesus, his ministry, His commission, which would have included the command to baptize. His his ascension, the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. These 12 disciples responded, notice, by being water baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they identified with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And after being water baptized, we see that in verse 6 that Paul laid his hands on them, no doubt in prayer. That the Holy Spirit came upon them and that they spoke with tongues and prophesied, and these two specific spiritual gifts are are the two gifts that Paul goes on to give in in-depth corrective teaching about in First Corinthians chapter fourteen. If you ever want to look that up and see what uh, Paul had to say about those two specific gifts, which oftentimes um, are are misused, are abused by believers, or are, are misunderstood are kind of left out because, man, I just don't want to touch it. It's just weird to some. Um, But they're gifts of the Spirit. They're gifts that God still gives. And actually, this is the only time recorded in the book of Acts where we find Paul laying his hands on anyone, praying for them to receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon their lives. This wasn't like a Uh, ongoing, normal, consistent thing that Paul necessarily did. Now, while there are situations where someone will put their faith in Jesus, they'll receive the indwelling of the Spirit as they become born again, and seemingly simultaneously receive the baptism with with the Holy Spirit also, like we find at the end of Acts chapter 10, with Cornelius and the people who had gathered in his house when Peter brought the Gospels really for the first time to Gentiles. There are multiple accounts throughout the book of Acts where someone put their faith in Jesus, they received the indwelling, the sealing of the Holy Spirit in their lives at the moment of their salvation. But then there being sort of a gap of time where later on they were baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit of God. We see this first happen with Jesus' disciples, Who received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as Jesus breathed on them in the upper room in John chapter 20, verse 22, but then later received the baptism with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit coming upon them in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. We also see this happen with the Samaritans who responded in faith to Philip's preaching in Acts chapter 8, who were saved, they received. The indwelling of the spirit but then a little later peter and john came and laid hands on them they prayed for them to receive the holy spirit who were told there had not yet fallen upon any of them and they then received the baptism with the holy spirit although there we see no spiritual gifts being given these 12 disciples were found by paul to be lacking in an area that God was wanting to pour out upon them abundantly. And praise God that he led Paul in the questions he asked and the things that he taught them so that this lack would be revealed and then would be remedied as they received all that God had for them by his spirit. You know, if any of us are lacking the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives today. We should not be content to stay in that place when God has provided more for us in and through his Spirit. And though being baptized with the Holy Spirit is not a determining factor in our salvation, as saved people, Jesus desires to baptize, to fill us. That word "baptized" just means to be immersed, be filled with his spirit because he knows that we are utterly in need of his power to be his witnesses to the lost, to have the fruit of God's spirit abounding in our lives, the agape love of God, which will result in greater glory to the Father so that we'll live lives of victory over sin and temptation so that will be given spiritual gifts to bless and to build up others in Jesus' body, his church. But with that reminder, we have to understand that the greatest indicator of us being filled with the Spirit is not getting Holy Spirit goosebumps, or as Luke Bryan likes to say, chill bumps. I got chill bumps. It's not that. The, the greatest indicator is not even a manifestation of spiritual gifts. It's not you speaking in tongues. It's not you having a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom. The greatest indicator of us being filled with the Holy Spirit is that the agape love of God is being produced in and is abounding from our lives. This is what Paul says wrote about beginning in, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31, all the way through the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Years after what we're seeing here in Acts chapter 19, as we're going to see again, as I said earlier, in our, in our study of Ephesians in chapter 5, Paul's going to write to them that they were to be being filled continually With the Spirit, not a one time occurrence. Like, yeah, I was filled with the Spirit way back in the day, but a daily, continual receiving from God. The Lord desires that for our lives still today, that we would be being filled continually with this Holy Spirit. Do we feel like we're less in need than the early church was? No, I think we're good. I don't think we need the power of the Spirit of God like they did. I don't think the, the church needs the gifts of the Spirit in operation like the early church did. Now, when I see the state of the church, I'm going, God, we need your Spirit at work. We need your Spirit moving. Lord, here among us. And I understand even that in me saying that, you know, we all bring our past church experiences to the table when i say man we need the spirit of god moving some of you might be going i don't know that i want to because i've seen some weird stuff that's been done in the name of the spirit quote unquote toronto blessing holy laughter rolling on the floor barking like a dog like there's all these things that have been done in the name of the Spirit, some dude whacking people with his jacket. Like, there's been stuff that's been called the Spirit of God that you will never find in the Scriptures that God has left for us. We want to be a biblical church. Being a biblical church doesn't mean that we have to disconnect ourselves from the things that are kooky, that have been done in the name of the Spirit, because we see some amazing things done by the Spirit of God that are supernatural things that, they, that we could not explain otherwise. And all we could come away with is going, God, we want you to move. We want you to work. We want you to set people free. We want you to bring deliverance. We want you to revive hearts. God, we want you to overflow lives. We want to walk in that. When Jesus, you said that you came to give life and that more abundantly. I want that. I don't want to be content with just life. I'm just living. I'm here. It's okay if that's where you're at. We get that, right? Like, don't condemn yourself if you come and you're going, I barely made it here. Like, I'm barely just putting one foot in the other. God, takes you where you're at with that but oftentimes the way we come to him God's going I don't want to leave you the way you came I don't want to leave you the way that you are I want to do more in your life and if God wants to do more if God says that there's more again we should say God do it Right? We, we looked at that in Luke's writings when Jesus is giving us information, knowledge, insight, revelation about prayer, praying to the Father, to ask and to seek and to knock, that it's supposed to be ongoing and present and continual. And then he says in that section that the Father gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Maybe this morning we have not in the power of the Spirit, we have not in the abundance of the Spirit filled life because we just haven't been asking. Or you know what? I asked once a long time ago and I didn't really see anything happen, so I just stopped asking. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Watch what God does. The Lord desires this for our lives. But let's continue on our, our last few verses here. As we wrap this up, eight, eight through ten. Verse eight. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples. Reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus, and this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. After ministering to those disciples, Paul picked things up where he left off in his really short stay at the end of his second missionary journey. And for three months, we see here that he continued to go to the synagogue. He spoke boldly about Jesus. He reasoned and persuaded concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But there came a point after those three months that some became hardened to what Paul was preaching about Jesus, about his kingdom. They would not believe, which turned into some of them speaking evil of the way. That word way being a reference to Christianity and the Christian message about Jesus. And because of that, Paul departed, he withdrew the disciples and began reasoning daily in the school of the first Sith Lord, Darth Tyrannus. No, just Tyrannus, no Sith Lord, it's not real, it's just a made up thing. As yes, Paul saw the hardness, saw the unwillingness to believe in some who began to speak evil of them, their message about Jesus, he decided to remove the disciples from that environment. He brought them with him to the school of Tyrannus, where he reasoned daily, likely during the un- uh, unused or open hours of the day, in the early afternoon, where people ate their meal. And rested. Paul used, possibly rented this school, thought to be a place where Greek philosophy was being taught. So it was clearly a pagan environment. And for two years, as we see in verse 10, he reasoned daily, no doubt preaching the gospel to any unsaved people who were around. But primarily, Paul's sort of desire, what he went about there, was. To teach the believers in Ephesus the word of God so that they would be equipped for the work of ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. As we'll see him write about in Ephesians chapter 4. This was the longest Paul had stayed put in one place in one of his missionary journeys. Paul in chapter 2 is going to say that he spent three years there total. We see the fruit of that decision in verse 10, that all who dwelt in Asia or Asia Minor heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. The the work God did as his word was taught to the believers in Ephesus in those two years that they met at this school was powerful. All who lived in Asia Minor, Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. This tells us the responsibility of getting God's word out didn't fall solely on Paul. Isn't it easy for us to just go like the pastor? The pastor will do it. The church leaders, they're the ones. They're the ones who preach the gospel. They're the ones who will get God's word out. But you know what Paul's focus was? Even again, in his writing there in Ephesians 4, he's like, hey, I'm, God's word's pouring into you so that you can do the work. You can do the work. God wants to do a work through you, through each of you. And that's what God did there in this young church, there in this pagan, corrupted, idolatrous, dark, infested with magic and demonic activity type of city. If God could do that there, what could he do here? What could he do in the Diablo Valley For the glory of Jesus and the furtherance of his kingdom. Through a body of believers who are getting God's word poured into them, equipping them so that you all can go out and do the work. Not not to the exception of me, but with me, all of us. Doing the work together. They were going out with the gospel message and through their ministry in those areas People were getting saved and new churches were being planted. I love it that when Paul writes to the church in Colossae, it becomes very clear Paul was not the one who started the church there. He'd never even been there. He's like, I heard. I heard things about what God's doing among you. You know what that testimony is? That God used other people than the apostles to do amazing things for God. Just normal people who believed God, who trusted Him at His word, who believed that the gospel is the power of God to salvation for any who would believe, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Do we have that same conviction though? Do we have that same confidence in the Lord today? I, I see in our world and, and within the church at large, I see segments of the church, and I, and I hear things and, and and see things on social media that you know what it is? It's hopelessness in the hearts of believers. Hopelessness just kind of like, well, that's where it is, just getting worse and ah, just wanting to separate, separate themselves from the people of this world. God has not called us to separation. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. But we're to be a people who are holy unto God, who are, who are in the midst of an unholy people who are on the road to destruction, bringing the gospel and the love of Jesus to them. And you know what's great? He brings them to our front door. He puts them in the house next to us, doesn't he? He puts them in our workplaces. He's put them in our families, in our friend circles. You went to school with them. You still keep in touch. And God's not going, just don't be, be away like a, her- a hermit. Just go live in a cave somewhere. Be holy in that way. He's like, be holy. But do it where you're at. Be holy in the state of California. Be holy. Be a gospel, Jesus-loving people in the Diablo Valley of all places. Because that's where he's put us. God put these people in Ephesus. Why? Because he wanted to reach the city of Ephesus. He wanted to reach Asia Minor. And God was going to use these people to do it. And I love that. They're just normal people like you and me living in a spiritually dark area as we're going to see even more clearly next week. But they were being filled with the Spirit of God. They were being equipped as they were taught the Word of God. And then they were seeking to live their lives fully for Jesus Christ. And these Ephesian believers are an example for us still today. And we're going to continue to learn more about the city and people of Ephesus and the work God did there, which is going to help us to see the book of Ephesians with the right perspective in our study next next week. But I'm going to have the worship team come back up. Guys, in, in closing here, you know, in order for us to be the kind of witnesses that Jesus desires us to be at home with our family, our neighbors, our friends, and our workplaces, wherever he places us with whoever he puts around us, I don't know about you, but I see this to be true in my own life. I need the power of his spirit to represent Jesus rightly, to reflect him well. Isn't it really easy to reflect you to other people? You know what happens when you reflect you to someone else? They just get you, right? They're not getting Jesus but what about when the Spirit of God is doing such a work in our life? He's sanctifying us. He's conforming us into the image of Jesus. We're, we're, we're being molded and shaped and, and the life and power of Jesus is shining through us. What happens then when we interact with people? They're going, what is the deal? What do you have? What are you on? I'm on Jesus. I'm on Jesus, and you know what? It doesn't cost any money. I don't have to go to a pharmacy to get him or the liquor store. I got Jesus. He's living in my life. Man, does he want to reach others through us? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Let's just remind ourselves of what Jesus said there. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The disciples there in Ephesus needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit and so do each of us. And God wants to do that work. He wants to fill us, but he wants us to ask him and to keep asking him to do that in our lives. So would we do that today? You know, maybe even during this time of worship for you, as just a sign of you asking is, you know what, I want to stand and just say, Lord, fill me. Fill me, Lord. God, just clothe me with power from on high. God, I want that abundant, spirit-filled life. I want to walk in that. God, I want all that you have for me. I don't want to settle for less. And so as we enter into this time, maybe for some of you, that's what you're going to do. You're going to to stand in just between you and the Lord. You're going to ask him to meet you where you're at. But maybe there's others even here today. and, And for you, what you need is just to receive the salvation of Jesus. You need your sins forgiven. You need to be washed from the guilt and the shame that you walked into this place with. And that's something that Jesus paid the price to provide for you and for me, that we could approach God with confidence. And we can do that. Can do that this morning. So would you pray with me, Lord God? Thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for this book of Ephesians that we're just kind of scratching the surface of, Lord. God, stir us, God, give, give us an excitement. Lord, even as we start this very first intro study, just looking at how God, your spirit moved among the disciples in Ephesus looking at, God, how your word equipped them and how you sent them out, God, and how, they, how the whole area, the whole region of Asia Minor heard the word of the Lord. God, we want you to move here. And God, I, I'm confident that there's other believers and other churches here throughout the Bay Area this morning, God, that are desiring the same thing. Lord, for you to move here, Lord, Lord, to move in this church, God, to move in this area, to move in the lives of our neighbors, the lives of our coworkers, Lord, our family members, our friends. God, to bring salvation to the lost, to fill, Lord, us with your spirit. God, would you do that today? Lord, you know each heart. God, you know where we're at. And maybe even Paul's conversation with those disciples, or it's sparking something within our own minds this morning that we're going, man, there is an area of lack. And maybe that area of lack just being, God, I, I need your spirit. Lord, fill me. Pour out upon me. Lord, immerse me. Baptize me completely with your spirit, Lord. Do a radical work in my life and through my life. Lord, make me an effective witness for you. God, make me a bold ambassador for you. I want the love of Jesus produced in my life. Lord, I desire to be a benefit to the church. Lord, give me spiritual gifts even, Lord, to serve you well. Meet your people this morning, God. Use this study of Ephesians in all the ways that you desire. And Lord, if anybody walked into this place, Lord, not having a personal saving knowledge of you, God, would you open their eyes, Lord, soften their hearts, God, help them to see, Lord, their need for you. And if that's anybody this morning and you're going, look, that's me. I I want Jesus to save me. I want my sins to be forgiven. I want to be sealed with the Spirit of God for the day of redemption. If that's you this morning, would you just lift your hand high and just say, that's me. Jared, would you pray for me? I want Jesus to. I want the life and power of Jesus in my life. I want the forgiveness, the grace, the peace of Jesus. Is that anybody here this morning, would you? Yeah, I see you. Anybody else, you're going, that's me? I see you. Lord, I just pray for these that have lifted their hands. I just encourage you in your own heart just to say, Jesus, would you forgive me? Lord Jesus, cleanse me of all my sins, all my unrighteousness. Jesus, I put my trust in you. I repent of my sin. Lord God, I humble myself before you and invite you to be my Savior, my Lord, my King, my God. My friend, Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sin, that you rose again from the grave. Jesus, would you pour out your spirit upon my life? Help me to live for you. I just encourage you, if you've done that, the Bible says you will be saved Maybe for some, this was more of a recommitment even this morning, and, and God was just drawing you back to himself. You didn't need to be saved again, that's not even a thing, but today, just you coming back to the Lord, saying, Lord, I just, I need you. And God, again, as we commit this time of praise, as we take the communion elements, as we have opportunity to be prayed for by the prayer counselors in the corner of the room, maybe some that will stand this morning just as they ask you, Lord, fill me with your spirit. Move upon my life, God. Have, have full reign and control of me. God, move here, Lord. We thank you, Father. We commit this time to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.